One of the things that institutional Christianity did for the world um, is canonize and doctrinize one's relationship to God. It said, one's relationship to God is thinking the right things and believing the right things. And that's not a relationship in the most simple sense. This is the Heath in Pursuit podcast with Heath Hollandsby. Each week we'll have a conversation with various folks who are actively engaged in the pursuit of truth. This is a show where anything can be discussed, and probably will. A podcast for the seekers, the dreamers, the restless, the hurt, and the broken. This is a podcast for you. Welcome to Heath in Pursuit. Thank you, James, and welcome to another edition of the Heath in Pursuit podcast. I am Heath Hollinsby, and I'll be curating this conversation for the next hour or so. And I am really, really, really excited about today's guest because uh, I was given a book by my friend William a couple of years ago called Bitten by a Camel. And it was the journey of a man named Kent Dobson. And Kent, uh, I didn't know anything about Kent at the time. And I read the book in a night and it was so good because it felt like everything he was addressing were things that I was at the time kind of processing through. He had worked in a church and I went to go find God, and that didn't end up the way that he wanted it to. And I just thought, man, this is so similar to me. And then he started attacking things in the most beautiful way, like eternity and loyal soldiers and uh, and being okay with asking questions and that sort of stuff. And I just thought, man, this book was so perfect. And I even took notes at the back just talking about how much of a great book it was and how I want to reread it. And so I reread it uh, a couple weeks ago, just finished it again, and I thought, man— this man has such a great voice, and I follow him on social media, and he's always producing really great content, stuff that is thought-provoking and unique and creative and along the spiritual kind of theme, and I thought I would love nothing else than to get Kent on the show, and so we worked it out, and so I'm super glad to have Kent here. We're going to talk about his story, about the book, about where he's at now, what he's into. So Kent, thank you for being on the show today. Yeah, appreciate it. You know, I was um, I was given your book by my friend William Turbyfill, who's been on the show as well, and he's he's one of the most intelligent thinkers I've ever come across. And he said, "You've got to read this book," and um, and I finished it in one night because it was just so ripe with the season that I was in at the time. And your book's called "Bitten by a Camel," and I was reading as I was reading the book, there were just so many times where it felt like it was my story, like. I, I'm I'm going somewhere. I'm disappointed. I feel like I'm not close enough to God. I feel like I need some some sort of insight as to what my next move might be. And so I make this really in, intentional push to move to something or to go somewhere or to uh, to start something new or to cut something, and then uh, end up being sorely disappointed. And uh, and so I'm kind of curious for those people who are, who are wondering what is this book about, and maybe a little bit of your backstory. Maybe we could start by you sharing that that story, like. What's like? What's it like being bit by a camel? What got you to that point? Uh, you, you know, because I followed Bell for a bit, well as as well, and I know what it was like to, um, you know, those are big shoes to step into, and so maybe just a little bit of backstory for people who don't know much about you. Yeah, uh, oh, I think it's probably worth saying. My dad was a pastor. Okay, and he worked for Jerry Falwell when I was a kid. So mm. this was like glamour Christianity. Yeah. Big names and jets and, um, you know, a real intense push toward political conversation around Christianity. Sure. 
but I was a kid, you know, so I was just doing kid things like playing yep. in the woods. And, uh, when, um, when my dad left that, he moved to Michigan and became a pastor here in Michigan at a big mega church. So the world, my sort of evangelical world didn't change a whole lot. Just the geography changed. Sure. Um, and, but I think my dad became a little less interested in the political conversation. And I, uh, went back to Liberty okay. with this, is, um, same school at Jerry Falwell, uh, founded in, in Virginia where I grew up. I played soccer there and was an English major. And hmm. that was probably the first, I really loved Liberty just because I needed kind of a safe place. I was a bit of a druggie and in, in okay. high school and, and being on the soccer team was really hard. I, re- I realized, Oh, I, I actually suck. I'm barely <laughs> on the team. And oh, no. uh, yeah, that, so that was, that was really, that was really good for me. And there were a lot of really important professors and sort of mentors and teachers during that time period of my life. And uh, that, that was the first seeds of, wait a minute, I'm not, well, I don't know. Besides yeah. just rebelling, the first seeds of thinking critically about Christianity, and sure. um, and that sort of continued on, and became a sort of deeper longing. And then eventually, I moved to Israel. So Rob Bell and I worked together at Mars Hill. Okay, I did the music. He did the teaching for the first four years, and then I moved to Jerusalem. And that's like, that's when I don't know. That's when there was a combination of unraveling and lots of like new life at the same time because huh. I, was, I felt like I was totally outside. I mean, what does Jerusalem have to do with American Christianity? Nothing. Yeah, exactly. You know? yeah. and, and, and also graduate school is like this. I mean, you can think whatever you know, one cares what you believe. Yeah, and exactly. So it was really life giving and challenging theologically and kind of um, when it came to my approach to the Bible and what is the Bible and sure. what is Christianity and how did, how did it come into, into being? And so um, the book, to answer your question in short, the, the story bitten by a camel happened when I was in Israel. Okay. And it was right as I was, if, as I look back now, right when I was just sort of done with this interventionist God that if I kind of did the right things and prayed the right way. And, you know, maybe I'd be, if I was more Jewish or something, I don't know, sure. then kind of there would be some alignment of meaning around religion and spirituality. And I was kind of desperate. So I had this mm-hmm. idea that I would fast and climb Mount Sinai because I would happen to be going there on a field study for school. Sure. And I invested a lot of kind of quiet hopes in this sort of like, Maybe God will tell me what to do, go yeah. back to church world, go keep going with graduate school, just something. And the, the you know, entire experience was the opposite of what I imagined and kind of constructed in my mind as kind of a holy spiritual, you know, quest. Sure. <laughs> it It's kind of a carnival sort of place, Mount Sinai is and on the way down that's when i was bitten by a camel and it just like and it wasn't just like an ordinary bite you know i mean this thing was swinging <laughs> me around and it was you know it's a terrifying <laughs> you know funny yeah but like shocking on the existential level and yeah. it really honestly it's not like i came down 
down from Mount Sinai. I thought, hey, this would make a great book. I like didn't talk about it for years. Oh, interesting. Because it was like it was it was a kind of symbol, but it was happening in such a complicated time of my life that it wasn't until a few years later I, that I started like saying, hey, there was this one time, and yeah. and then it sort of started to make sense to me as as a kind of metaphor for for my life and for, mm. and I guess more broadly for how, I don't know what deconstruction and unraveling and descent can look like. Yeah. Was that something that, um, you know, when you talk about this kind of unraveling, uh, I've spent most of my life in American evangelicalism and that wasn't, and we'll talk about this here in a few minutes, but, um, I wasn't given much permission as a child to, or even through through college to really question the text or question, or to, as you would say, like think critically about Christianity. Do you feel like uh, your time with Rob is, is was kind of gave you that permission? Because when I think about like the Falwell situation or even Liberty, I could just be naive, but it doesn't seem like those would be places that would even encourage that sort of thought. Do you feel like your time in Michigan kind of prepped you to to end up in Israel and, and to be able to critically address some of your faith concerns? I don't know. Um, well, being with Rob, he's, he's like an enthusiast, you know, hmm. so like any new idea, he's has a way of like absorbing it and saying yes in kind of a happy way sure. and, and integrating it and sort of moving forward. So in that sense, the energy for, why are we doing this? You know, even like yeah. ordinary church stuff, why are we doing this? It was, it wasn't a, it was done in a, in a spirit of sort of lightness. And that was like really good for me instead mm. of, um, you know, like, Ooh, you know, Christianity, there's this dark wound that no one wants to talk about. And there are sure. plenty of those, but, <laughs> yeah. um, I, I think, and I think both of us at the same time, we were reading the same kinds of books and swapping books around. And mm. I think, kind of the question of the historical Jesus yep. probably for me more than him, but really hooked me and okay. hooked us a, li- a little bit in that, wait a minute, kind of white, white friendly Jesus is not the Jesus of history. Sure. And that's when, we, that's when I started to get into context and, um, and that was the, that was the pull to Israel. So I think, I mean, being around the early days of Mars Hill was, was extremely influ- influential. And I guess, I guess your way of putting it is nice. It, it gave me a certain kind of permission yeah. to, to, I don't know, push against stuff to question yeah. and to doubt. Yeah. And it's like, we, no one was, you know, shaming anybody for having questions. <laughs> I covet that story because that's something that I wish I'm 36 now, and that's something that is is fairly new to my story. That's something that I wish years ago somebody would have said, like, no, it's okay to push back if it doesn't make sense. Like, like expose that, like think critically about this because you're you're banking, you know, in the in the theological lens that I was raised in, you're banking everything on having to get that that text right. Yeah. And if you question it and you're wrong, it's not like oh, you get a slap on the wrist. It's an eternity of of awfulness that you'll never be able to escape up from. And so yeah, I almost wonder if that, that, uh, that permission is something that, you know, even my wife and I have talked about is like, no, raise kids to, to be intellectually honest with this conversation. If we're going to, if we're going to value a Christian faith, um, 
or try to lean into what the actual person and teachings of Jesus was in the context to which it was given, like, yes, absolutely think critically. Because if not, you're just, you're just absorbing a narrative that's been taught to you by whoever's closest to you that has a narrative that was taught to them, that was taught to them. And, you know, um, so yeah. one of the things that you say in, in the book that was really fascinating, because it, it resonates really with my story, is here you are in a church and you're leading this, this it's it's not just a church. I mean, there was a lot of attention on this church uh, nationally. And, and I remember you talking about how everything was kind of falling apart. And I was in a similar boat, you know, uh, on church leadership. And there's this expectation that you um, don't disappoint your congregation. There's this expectation that you have answers to everything and that those are solidified and those don't change over time. And and uh, if I read the book correctly, it, it felt like for you that keeping it all together just wasn't an option. And even when you were, it was actually when you weren't expecting it that things uh, started feeling insincere to what you were saying and what you were teaching. And I'm I'm just kind of curious what that experience was like for you leading a church and also at the same time being confronted with the, I don't know how much I'm buying this anymore. Yeah. Um, yeah, maybe just to close the loop. So I, I, when I moved back from Israel, I was there for like three years. Yep. I taught high school for a while, which was really good for me. And then when Rob left Mars Hill, then I took his job. And, and in some ways it made a lot of sense because okay. I actually didn't, I never had this feeling like, man, I'm, I'm following Rob Bell or whatever, because, sure. well, because he's a friend of mine for one thing, but also it's like the kind of, um, Christian fame that he achieved. I like was in Israel for most of that. And so uh-huh. I like, wasn't, it's not like I wasn't aware, but I, I, it wasn't a part of my circle. I wasn't. Huh. I didn't know what was going on or care really about that kind of conversation. Sure. And plus I knew everybody there. It's, I looked around the table and I knew the elders. I knew the Mm. people on staff. I know the people in the congregation. And so it made a lot of sense. And I was maybe, I was also feeling that I didn't know how long teaching high school was going to last for me, even though I really liked it. Sure. And I don't know. Once I got there, though, I started to feel the weight of of the institution that, hmm. wait a minute, this is, there is a lot of concern and care about keeping this thing going, keeping yeah. the money flowing in, keeping the donors happy. Yep. Um, and even though people weren't talking like that, they were talking like that. And it, it started to leave a bad taste in my mouth. Like, what, right. wait a minute, what my, my own projections and ideas about Mars Hill as kind of a, a place to push boundaries and things like that, as Rob often did in his teaching. Yeah. Um, there's a big difference between doing that in a teaching or a talk and your policies. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So um, I, and I also started to realize in a very direct way, I'm not an evangelical. That's not something that, that's not something I really ever connected with even. And what I mean by that is a certain literalist approach to the Bible as kind of the spine of evangelicalism. I mean, it's not totally that, but that's definitely part of it. 
and a very nuanced conversation about biblical interpretation, believe it or not, was not very welcome. Hmm. It was more, I, I was feeling and was told at times, hey, it's okay to push from time to time, but you've got to come back around and you know, you can't leave people hanging and yeah. and you've got to reassure them that you're that you haven't lost the plot or whatever. And hmm. so that was kind of in the background, but I have I have to be honest. Okay. Which is I felt what I would call the tug of my own deeper self or my soul even hmm. to leave. And if I was going to grow up spiritually, I had to get out of the whole environment and not try to make the environment work for me. Cause I could have done that. I could have sure. said, look, I'm in charge and I want these theological points made. And I want, if, if you don't want to work here, leave. If you don't want to yeah. be an elder here, leave because you have a lot of power when you're like the pulpit person. And yeah, absolutely. So that, that made me uncomfortable, the prospect of that. Now you could say, oh, I didn't have enough courage or whatever. Some people probably criticize me for that. But there was like this deeper mm. thing that I cannot pretend. And I was feeling like Rilke has this line, now you must go out into your heart as onto a vast plain. Yeah. And there the immense loneliness begins. And I felt that call. Hmm. Go out into your heart as onto a vast plane, even if it's lonely and leave this world instead of um, revolving around the sun of evangelical Christianity or pretending to maybe yeah. that's, I just had to leave the orbit. And, and I wasn't, even now I probably couldn't tell you all the reasons, but it's, but I, I want to say directly, it's not because well, these 10 things that Mars Hill and I didn't line up with, you know, we just couldn't see eye to eye. No, it sure. was like, the, it was a calling. It was like a calling in an old fashioned sense. Yeah. A whisper that would not leave me alone. And I wasn't going to remain inauthentic if, if I didn't heed this call. You know, and I got to applaud that because, um, it reminds me a bit of like what I think St. John of the Cross would say, that that dark night of the soul, um, you know, that season of of uh, of silence and, and quietness and loneliness that actually births real lasting change. And mm -hmm. um, and I know a lot of people and I felt the temptation of of going, well, you know, it's a good paycheck and I can, yeah, I could stay here and probably move up to be even more senior here and um and not be honest with myself and, and I could fake it and just kind of be a career pastor. And I have to applaud the sense that you, that that wasn't good enough for you, that that wasn't appealing to you, that you rather would, would go to the call that produced a more authentic uh, human. And I think the results of that are evident in your work and your teaching and probably even your own joy, you know, um, yeah. Yeah. because you can only, you can only dance that dance for so long, uh, if, if you have that authentic calling pulling you to, to go into the unknown and, and figure something out that might be a bit more deeper and lifelong fulfilling. Yeah. Yeah, for yeah. sure. But it's not like I did it in triumph. Sure. You know, it's, it was a severance and, um, and it hurt too. Mm. You know, it was yeah. hard to say no to the paycheck. It really sure. was. I mean, the number of pastors that I still talk to that say something similar, you know, like I, it's, it's, I don't know if I can leave the paycheck. I don't stand up and say, do it anyway. You know, yeah. it's worth it. 
You yeah. know, you have to figure like every individual case is so wildly unique and, and, and pastors like, they don't have any jobs, translatable job skills. Oh, they, I mean, they do actually, sure. but it doesn't look that way on paper. And it feels like, God, what the hell am I going to do if yeah. I step out of this world? Yeah. So, would you kind of equate that to, uh, I, I mean, I don't want to over-spiritualize it, but I would equate now my story with with almost, uh, you remember the the uh, the passage in Genesis of Jacob kind of wrestling with this angel or this God figure, uh, where it was like, I'm not leaving until I figure this thing out. Like you could, you you are the stronger person, but I'm not giving up until I I, I wrestle you to the ground and and walk with a limp forever because of it. Yeah. And uh, th- I don't know if that kind of equates to you at all, but for me, that's how I I kind of share that journey that I was on is. It took a couple nights of, of wrestling and going, I'm not leaving until I work this thing out because I yeah. know that I'm not going to be satisfied anymore. And I still walk with a limp because of it. Yeah, that's just it. That's it. Um, the descent, the descent yeah. of soul to what Thomas Merton would call the true self. Nobody gets out of the limp. And, yeah. and we don't live in a culture that tells that story. We don't live in a spiritual or religious Christian culture that tells that story. So it's like, Sort of like, hey, those old characters kind of did hard things so you don't have to. You know, yeah. it's like, no, that's just not the way it works. Yeah. And uh, and yeah, Jacob is definitely one of my one of my favorite stories. I mean, that's like I mean, I'm sure you know this, but maybe other people don't. But just like the, the idea that he gets named Israel, which means to wrestle with God. I mean, yeah. that that single idea saved my life in a way because it's saying the point is to wrestle instead of the point is to shut your mouth and believe the right things and vote the right way and, and raise your kids with, you know, whatever. It's just, doesn't, that's not the, the deeper story for sure. Yeah. You know, in, in your book, you talk about this uh, concept that um, I, I find actually really fascinating. And it's this concept of, of having loyal soldiers uh, and I know that there's many listeners to this program that probably haven't even heard this concept presented before, though once we unpack it, they'll go, oh, this is this makes sense. Um, but I think for me, the attachment to the loyal soldiers in my life kept me from actually moving forward. And I think it was your book that kind of addressed that, that put uh, a phrase to it where I could actually tangibly go, okay, this is that obscure thing that I couldn't figure out how to define. Um, and so I'm kind of curious if you could... Uh, maybe unpack what you refer to as loyal soldiers and then maybe give us a couple ideas on how to recognize those in our lives and how to deal with them. Because to be honest, I, I think that um, in my life, I don't even think I know I've lost people that I really love because they weren't able to honestly confront their loyal soldiers. And, and uh, mm-hmm. for so long I was unwilling. And so maybe we could talk about that for a minute. Yeah, sure. So the story um, comes from post World War II, where these Japanese soldiers were stranded on these islands and they didn't know the war was over. And they continued holding their post, doing their soldier things for years and years and years until they were finally discovered. And they were told the war is over. And Japan brought them back and they had big fanfare and they welcomed them back and they said they sort of reassigned them. But Mm. what psychologists have said is that what kept them going was the idea of the war that they that that's how they were going to survive i mean how are you going to survive for years on a desert island 
I mean, without going insane. Well, yeah. you you have to be employed. And in this case, they were employed by an idea, by an ideology, by, by a nation. Um, so they, the parallel is that when we're in childhood, it's like a war. Hmm. And we develop coping strategies and nobody gets out of this. I mean, sure. I don't care if you're like parent, if you're Eckhart Tolle is your dad or something, you know, you're going to, you're going to develop coping strategies because you're not psychologically healthy to survive the war of childhood without them. Now, right. here are examples of um, coping strategies or subpersonalities or complexes, depending on what kind of language you want to use. Mm -hmm. Things like be a good boy and a good boy does X or a good girl does Y or um, a good boy dresses like this. A good boy says things like this. Yeah. Um, here's another example of kind of a loyal soldier activity to survive the war, war of childhood. Let's say um, your dad is a rageaholic. So if you can walk on eggshells and not slam any doors and get him his iced tea at the right time, then there won't be a major incident. There won't be the war won't mm. explode. So you learn how to do that as a kid. Yeah. You learn how to walk on eggshells. You learn how to suppress your emotions. You learn how, might even learn how to suppress your own anger. You might dissociate from your own anger, whatever. Just sure. using various examples. Or if you're a, a, a kid with tons of enthusiasm, but that's for some reason not allowed in your house. You mm. can't be an exuberant person because uh, good girls don't, don't, they remain quiet. Sure. And, yep. and this all happens in the unconscious and it helps us survive. So the, what happens is that when you're an adult, you don't know the war of childhood is over. Hmm. So all of these strategies still function in your day-to-day -day life, in your marriage or with your partner, with your, you know, in your job, with your friends, you know, whatever, still might be trying to be a good boy, still might be uh, detached from your anger, anything that will keep you alive. So here's an example of one from my life. Okay. It's something like one of my loyal soldiers whispers in my ear, who do you need to please in this room to be safe? Now, wow. that's not exactly a, a conscious thought. It's on the border between consciousness and, and the unconscious, sure. but it's, it's there. And it's a loyal soldier voice. And it works because if I look around the room, I think, okay, if I please so-and-so and so-and-so, -and -so, I'll be safe enough. And sure enough, I'll know how to say the right things, you know, yep. to, to to get around whatever it is that their agenda might be. And it turns out it works. It's just not very good for maturity because mm. the I, the Kent, my own authentic self gets sidelined. The loyal soldier is the one that takes over. So unless I learn to identify these voices, these loyal soldier voices, um, I'm not going to grow up mm. and, I'm not going to individuate to use a, a word from Carl Jung, but hmm. um, I'm not going to be myself. I don't even know what myself is because in this case, I'm trying to please so-and-so and so-and-so -and -so because they're people in authority, you know, this right. kind of stuff. So um, one of the things that had to happen for me is I had to confront some of my own loyal soldiers and um, you'll be safe if you stick to the script of 
evangelical Christianity. You can push on certain theological issues, but you better keep your mouth shut around A, B, and C because that's going to be dangerous. You're going to be murdered. You're going to be thrown out of town and pushed off a cliff. Sure. You know, these are the kind of um, feelings one has when the loyal soldier is activated. And mm. and so one of the things I learned from Bill Plotkin, who's one of my teachers, where I learned this concept from, actually. Okay. He says you got to thank them for their loyal soldier or for, for their loyal service. You have to thank them. Okay. And so in my case, like, okay, I feel if I if I'm being more conscious, I'm in this room and there are a lot of people who might have some power over me and I can feel that old voice saying, make sure you please so-and-so. So hmm. what I might do is say something like, if I'm <laughs> conscious enough, <laughs> I might say something like, hey, thanks for trying to keep me safe. That's ordinarily how I've operated. But right now I'm 40. I don't know how old I am. I'm 43, <laughs> I think 42 okay. or 43, somewhere in there. And I'm an adult. I'm a, mm -hmm. I'm adult enough. And I'd rather take the risk of using my authentic voice here. So thanks for helping me, but I'm going to take a risk. So yeah. that kind of like almost playful way of thanking the loyal soldier is a lot better than you know, you shouldn't have one or. Yeah. Why are it you seems almost disarming, right? In yeah. a sense, like to be playful with it is to actually disarm the power that it has over you. It is. When you were kind of in the quest to identify your own personal loyal soldiers, is that something that you deep down kind of knew what they were or, or did you invite others that were close to you kind of into the conversation to say, Hey, did you see any of these in my life that I might not be, that I might be blind to? Or what was that process? Well, I mean, let's just extend it, the conversation a little bit from loyal soldier to other sub-personalities. See, a sub-personality is a personality that takes over and runs your life for a little while. Hmm. And so one is the loyal soldier. Here are other ones like um, the escapist or the addict or the wounded child or or other shadow elements even. Sure. So... The short answer to your question is no, I needed some help. I didn't, it wasn't obvious to me what all my loyal soldier voices were. It wasn't obvious to me when I was behaving like a wounded child. It wasn't obvious to me that I had an escapist tendency and, until I started to bring the light of consciousness. And how did I do that? Well, I mean, I got a therapist, I have friends, I read books, sure. I did retreats and programs that were oriented around self development. Um, like the escapist, for example. Um, that's a sub personality. And like, if we were at a party, I, I would know kind of where to stand and kind of who to hang out with so that I could sort of leave at any moment. That, sure. But I'm not thinking that. And that's not obvious to me that that's what I'm doing. I'm just, I have an escape strategy. I have yeah. an exit button. Um, why? Because it's trying to keep me safe, you know, but huh. so I don't know. I mean, maybe to try to land the plane here, I think part of growing into the second half of life is beginning that conversation with these, the many parts of, of who we are. And it's complex, you know? Mm, yeah, it is. Um, and, and it takes time. There's no weekend retreat where I now have identified all these voices in my life and I sure. thank them for helping me. And now I'm enlightened it just doesn't work that way they yeah. they've been operating for a long time unchecked so it takes time 
Yeah, that's really good, man. Um, so I know we talked a bit about deconstruction here in the past, and uh, I've gone through elements of it, and I know that you have as well. And I'm sort of curious um, how you got to the place of not fearing uh, that you were maybe getting it all wrong, or that if you got a certain aspect wrong, that you were going to burn for eternity. Because in your book, you mention uh, that there's really nothing to fear. You even say that you went out to find God, and God wasn't there, and everything that you've ever learned about God fell apart, and that this had to happen for you to grow up. And I found this to be true in my life as well, and the side of it um, that I probably, I would admit, am still going through is actually making my faith and my thoughts of faith and who the person of Jesus is a lot more beautiful and honest. And and I, I'm finding how much of those fake answers I've had to give for so long that I that now I can question. Um, and I'm, I'm kind of wondering, how would you go about encouraging people to not be scared and to take some of these dives and to get some things wrong? And what is it that's causing this fear in so many people to keep, that keep them from ever going there, maybe especially for those in like evangelical Christianity? Oh, this is, you know, this is a tough, tough question or series of questions, Hmm. but also really important. I think one of the things that institutional Christianity did for the world um, is uh, canonize and doctrinize one's relationship to God. It said one's relationship to God is thinking the right things and believing the right things. Mm. And that's not a relationship. I mean, in the most simple sense, like you don't say, Hey, you know, you're not dating someone and be like, Hey, you need to believe these five things about me um, before we can sort of get going. Well, that doesn't make any sense. You know, that's not a relationship. And, and, um, and one of the things that started encouraging me is that, the the saints and mystics and teachers and whatever from the past seem to have a kind of experience. Hmm. And that's what I was longing for, uh, an experience. Yeah. And not even a certain kind of experience, just experience itself. It's like part of it is learning to trust the raw nature of, of one's own life. Hmm. And whether or not that lines up with some doctrine statement um, I think that's the thing that probably needs to be let go of. It's like, I really think we have turned the idea of God into exactly what the Bible means by an idol. God yeah. has become an idol or the Bible has become an idol. And we're, we're bowing down to this constructed form that then, then is like a tyrant over us. Like, yep peers into our brains to make sure we think the right things. I mean, that, that is so far from a direct experience of mystery. And Hmm. and I think, so one of the things that helped is, is kind of early on in my own sort of deconstruction, I was introduced to, to this book, the cloud of unknowing. And one of the, it's a mystical book and it's, it's, I mean, it's not like easy reading, sure, but he says some very simple things that really helped. He said, okay, you're going along in life and your faith is whatever, strong or weak, doesn't matter. Um, if, if, if you're ready for, or ready enough for the next phase, you have to enter what he calls the cloud of forgetfulness. Hmm. And he says directly, you have to forget everything you've ever been told about God. 
And just to hear that from, um, from the mouth of a saint, if you want to put it that way, no one knows who wrote the thought of unknowing. He is, he's an anonymous, we know he's a male because he's addressing actually uh, uh, women in the text. Um, but just to say the journey involves forgetting, letting go of unknowing, not knowing that. And so like when people reach that terrifying place of, I don't know what I think anymore. I mean, part of me is just excited. Like this is it. This is what they're talking about. This is entering the cloud of forgetfulness. This is letting go. This is shedding. This is not knowing. Um, It's like what Jesus says to Peter. When you're young, you went around and did what you wanted. But when you're old, you'll be led by a way you know nothing about. So I don't know why it's, that's the case, but it's a pattern. It's like ego is involved at the beginning and it thinks it knows and it thinks it has faith and it believes the right things. And if that's going to crack, it's going to hurt and it's going to feel like disorientation and disillusionment and, and concern. And I just say, yep, that's the way it is. (laughs) That's, that means you're on the right kind of path. Did you ever have that pushback of, of, uh, did you ever have pushback of people going like, Kent, we're, we're really concerned about you. And did that ever kind of stall your, your pressing into this unknown? Well, speaking of another sub personality, I have a bit of a rebel streak. Okay. (laughs) I, you know, yes, people were worried about me and this kind of stuff, but I was like, to hell with it. I don't care. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Um, So uh, yeah. Um, Now there, there, if that doesn't mean I didn't doubt myself, I did. Yeah. I think anytime you step into the unknown, you leave the home that raised you, so to speak, and you yeah. really, really step into the unknown. It's a mixture of self-doubt and some regret. And I mean, there just today I was regretting, you know, my old paycheck from, from Mars Hill. I was like, God, I'd oh. like to make that kind of money again, you know? Yeah. yeah. Um, and then, you know, you can easily go down the path of why did I do that again? You know, yeah. so yeah. self-doubt and, and second guessing is part of it. Um, but that's not all that's there. And there are other moments that it's like, no, this is, I wouldn't trade any of this. You yeah. Know? There is a beauty to the other side. Um, even as you were just talking about like, the, you know, the Mars Hill paycheck, I was thinking how I've kind of, re- you know, I've taken some risks as well and how I've been shamed for that. Like, you know, like if I was to contextualize what you just said with something, I'd be, I, that I, something I'm familiar with, it would be like, if I expressed that, I would get something along the lines of like, well, you know, you did, you, you do got to provide for your family. Maybe it, maybe it does make sense to stick in there and do, do what you don't believe in anymore because your ultimate job is to be, be a provider, you know? And, and so there's this justification of the very things that I'm grateful that I've left. Yeah. Uh, but there is beauty on the other side. And the more yeah. that, you know, for me, the more that you, when you enter into that unknowing, the more beautiful the world has become for me to, to now see it as, I think I said offline before we started recording, I went through this Calvinist phase where I had, I mean, I had an answer for everything. And I think that was inspired because my best friend was killed uh, or, or, or died. And, uh, and my theology up to that point couldn't, couldn't hold the weight of the questions I was asking. And so I needed to find something that gave me uh, cookie cutter answers, even if it didn't make the most intellectual sense to me, at least I could justify that uh, I believed a certain set of beliefs that would not, that'd be hard to break. Yeah. 
Now coming on the side of going, I don't know, and I don't have any of this figured out. While terrifying, because I, as a father and as a husband, I wish I had some of those answers for kids that are now asking those questions. Mm -hmm. I do find beauty in going, I don't know. And the more I don't know, the more I realize that I know even less. (laughs) And then the world just becomes more beautiful and playful and theology gets a lot more playful. And um, I, I can't imagine going back. Yeah. I just, yeah. I just can't do it. Yeah. I, and as you were speaking, I mean, that's very beautiful what you said about, um, about your friend and tragedy mm-hmm. and, and that's just so normal, you know? Yeah. Like, you know, my dad, my dad died of ALS and mm-hmm. the same, the same year that I quit Marcel, just two months after I quit, Jeez. I said I was leaving. Um, and I was already deep in the, unknowing phase sure. but the number of people and i think well-intentioned who are saying things like this is why this happened you know this yeah. is you know sort of like playing a kind of theological math yep um to explain the unexplainable like some people get diseases it's yeah. chance it's random yep. and that's so difficult it's so difficult i think for christians in particular if you take the yin and the yang's uh, the symbols that there's chaos and order, you know, or, yeah. or, um, eros and logos and they're in a sea, you know, and they turn over. Yes. There's order and meaning and reason. And there's also chaos and darkness. Yeah. And, and it's just like, that's a lot to take. And yeah. a system that says, okay, here are some answers is really attractive and, hmm. um, and works for a while until it doesn't, you know? Yeah. Yeah. You know, um, what, there's a couple things that you said that, that I just found really helpful throughout the book. And one of them was, and I think it, it it's helpful because having come through the, the Calvinist ropes where your theology begins with how depraved and terrible you are in the eyes of God, uh, you mentioned that the church is actually employing a, a kind of child abuse and doing tremendous damage to young people by telling them that they're a problem to God from their first breath. And you even say that the church wounded a lot of people with its low view of human beings and its narrow view of God. And I absolutely agree because one of the hardest things for me has been untangling this ball of crap theology that's been embedded in me for years. And the wild thing is that um, you, you mentioned that this it's this type of teaching that actually pays the bills because churches make a living on this kind of shame because it creates this codependency. Yeah, And I'm kind of curious... Like what, what's the alternative? Like, what would you say to people that just constantly feel like not enough because the church has beaten them up for decades? Oh, geez. I wish I knew. Yeah. Um, I'm sure you've well, seen that. This isn't, this isn't a localized, like, oh, that's probably just the Seattle area. I mean, no, this seems no, to be it's a... everywhere. It's everywhere. Yeah. Like, you know, my, my friend Pete Rollins it, it equates it to going to the bar. Like, hmm. you go to the bar and you get hammered and the next day you wake up, and you're like, I'm never going to do that again. And then, you know, the weekend rolls around and you're back at the bar again. He's like, it's the same thing with church, you know? Yeah. Um, and, and just, I don't know, there's something addictive about the cycle and it keeps you locked in, you know? Hmm. Um, I don't know. I, I, I think s- some of it, I mean, I guess the first thing that, that came to my mind as you asked the question was, was how how Jesus trusted his own experience. Hmm. And he wasn't like going around to rabbis and be like, Hey, you know, what do you think about the parable of the good Samaritan? Would this like make it for a good parable? (laughs) Sure. Um, 
and and he he also trusted in his own wild solitude with the divine mystery like mm. 40 days and 40 nights fasting like yeah. constantly leaving the disciples and sleeping outside you know so yeah. part of me wants to answer that question with okay then don't go to church go mm. go on your own vision fast uh wander around the woods trust yeah. the nature of your own experience trust your own questions you're going to be tempted just like jesus was but and and also then jesus turned that very same thing back around to his disciples he's like now you go and do this it yeah. wasn't like um he it doesn't seem like he was creating this um codependency on his personhood he was more Whoa. like well you know, you go and do it and see what happens. And yeah. haven't been given that message. Um, and I think the low view of humanity contributes to that. You know, I, I mean, mm. I think if I hope I was clear in the book that I'm trying to correct something, which is this yeah. total depravity. But it's not like one is totally good either. I mean, human beings are complicated. You know, it's like sure. Like in Judaism, they say the Yetzer Hara and the Yetzer Tov. If you have an inclination to do good and you have an inclination to do evil, and that's just the way it is, and you're going to be a mixed figure. You know, yeah. George Washington is going to own slaves. You know, I mean, nobody is pure. So sure. in any case, um, I don't know. It's like... I think what you already said is really beautiful. I mean, I've never, I've never seen that freedom of Jesus's lack of expectations on his disciples to conform to a certain way. Yeah. You know, even, you know, even I read a book recently by Conrad Gemfi called Jesus asked. And, uh, and the whole thing was, I mean, out of the hundred and something, 160, 180 questions in scripture asked, posed to Jesus, he only answered three of them. Yeah. Um, and people, even the good questions, like good teacher, what, what must I do to be saved? And he doesn't, you'd think he'd give, I mean, that's like a, that's like a level A question to ask. And he goes, well, like, why would you call me good? Yeah. You know, he, does, he he never gets to the point. And so we have these expectations. And I know in, in even in my role in the church, and I, know, I think a lot of pastors do this, is this is what you got to do. This is how you got to think. This is what this text means. And so you have to get this. If you don't, if you don't hear what I'm saying, if you, if you listen to this, if you haven't listened to this whole message, you have to get this. And those just those even minuscule suggestions of you have to do it this way for it to make sense is I've never drawn that parallel. Like I've never drawn that comparison that you just put. And, and in fact, there was a season where I was really going through this whole nature, you know, where I live, it's, it's just beautiful. And I do find God out in nature. And I was sternly corrected that the only way to God is through Jesus. And so whatever I was experiencing in nature was not was not drawing me to God, but something else. And I, I still feel the guilt of that. Like, I still feel guilty for going, maybe the best thing for me is not to show up on Sunday morning and sit for an hour and listen to something that I don't even really care about, but to go out and be grateful and, and to feel the breath in my lungs and to see the animals and to watch the ocean. And, and I still feel guilty that I can't do that because the only way to God is through Jesus, because I was so strongly shamed. Yeah, see, I mean, Jesus, he went to the synagogue and got thrown out. So what did he do? Wander around. He said, the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Hmm. He spent his evenings under the stars. He spent yeah. time in boats. You know, I mean, he's, yeah. um, 
I mean, of course, we're dealing with a time period where the relationship between nature and human beings is closer than it is today. Sure. And I mean, the opening lines of Genesis are some say that God spoke and brought these things into being. So you can say the creation itself is the word of God. That's the most direct translation. Yeah. But I don't know. We've somehow localized everything just so that the ego can control it, you know? And well, yeah. it's, hard, it's hard to... Uh... It's hard to say how many people showing up at your church or how many people are tithing when you're out in nature instead. Exactly. You know? uh, another aspect that you really, like for me, you completely have changed my thinking and I'm grateful is uh, on your thoughts of hell. It's been really helpful because um, between Rob's Love Wins book and your thoughts, it was sort of like the one-two punch that I needed to detox my views on hell. And then from there I went into... Um, a book called Inventing Hell and how most of that, most of what we know of, of the literal hell comes from Dante's Inferno. And, you know, you mentioned that if we think Jesus will take all the good people to heaven and torture everyone else, there's no need to do anything other than worry about being in the right group. And so much of Christianity is stuck right there. And if people, if other people are going to burn forever as the enemies of God, why love them if God can't even love his own enemies? Because neither should we, because God can't even practice what he preaches. (laughs) And, uh, I mean, that is so good. Like, if I could tattoo that in a couple words so it didn't take up my whole leg, I would totally do it. But um, I'm, I'm kind of curious if you find the fear of a like a literal eternal torment is kind of this dangling carrot in front of the cart that keeps people blindly obeying certain things without much questioning. Yeah, I mean, that's how it is in, in evangelicalism or any kind of fundamentalism. It's like yeah, when you take the sting of hell out, you've got, you know, it kind of frees people up to think whatever they want. You, could, you yeah. can be playful. And not have to worry about eternal torment because you got it wrong. And, you know, and as you, I'm sure you know, I mean, it's like the the idea of some sort of physical location somewhere is pretty new. And you, yeah. can, you can say for sure that in the Hebrew Bible, it's just not even there. It's like, yeah. it's not like Abraham was like, man, after, after I make it to the land of Canaan, can't wait to die and go to heaven. It's not even an idea. So mm. it's like, what were these people doing then? What, what? Yeah. Who was God to them? And what was the mystery of birth and death to them? Hmm. And I don't know. It's like, I just don't have a palette for that anymore. Now, yeah, me neither. I also think that even Dante's Inferno has something to say about human nature. I think hmm. the idea, the imaginative idea of a place of torment is, is, is is psychologically necessary on one level. I don't think it's literal, but it's psychologically necessary. I mean, look at um, the the very notion of a nuclear holocaust, which is uh, one button push away. Really, yeah. it really is. That's not a joke. That's not. Yeah, like, you're right. It really is like that. Is the possibility of that kind of hell right now because the psyche, the human psyche, possesses that kind of darkness? That is mm-hmm. a living hell. Not only will we create hell on earth, that kind of darkness is also in the human psyche. So mm-hmm. I'm not exactly like, um, I mean, I'm not about literalizing hell, but I sure. think the juxtaposition between these two uh, images gives us a window into the nature of the psyche that hmm. we shouldn't be naive about. Like if it's all flowers and everybody's good and um, that's just naive. 
And, um, and, but the opposite is intolerable, which is everybody's dark and totally depraved. And you don't even have thoughts of your own. Even if you have a good thought, God gave that to you. That's intolerable, you know? So, um, somehow it's the poles that the truth is between these poles. It's it's the cross, you know, it's, um, it's between the two thieves, the, the one who's, who's a liar and a cynic and the other that believes. And that's Mm. just where we all are between these two realities. Yeah. That's so good, man. You know, one thing we were just talking about um, that I kind of wanted to just ask how you would encourage people or, or even speak to people. um, Something you taught me a lot about is this idea of questioning everything being okay. Uh, The idea of wrestling and talking back to God in a sense. And in fact, you even uh, would argue that it's deeply spiritual to say things like, I'm not sure. Uh, or I don't really even care that that might be even a holy statement you would say. Um, and this is such a foreign approach to so much of what many people that I know have been told to believe because uh, there's a system where we want to pay the experts to do the reading and the studying and then to tell us what to do for an hour on Sundays. And this is such a boring and lifeless way to engage the Christian faith. You've taught me this bells taught me this of like, like no talk back question like at and 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 a question leads to another question and then another and then five more and then 10 more and i'm kind of curious how in your teaching and the authority or the or not maybe not authority the the position that you have in speaking to people that that really do value your voice um, how do you champion this pushback to those that that you get to talk in front of like how are you teaching people to question more and to debate the text more and to fight to be more intellectually honest well, I mean, I'm doing it by just embodying it. I mean, that's the, the short short way. I'm not telling anybody what to do. I'm just mm. doing it myself because I think it's valuable. Um, yeah, and that provides a freedom for others to I engage so. the same way. I yeah. hope so. I mean, that, that's why people hung out with Jesus. Obviously, I'm not Jesus, but it's like he was just embodying a certain way of being in the world. And, that's, yeah. and only he can embody his way of being in the world. And only I can embody my way of being in the world. And when that's authentic and rooted in the ground, in the ground of mystery itself, then, um, you know, that, that, that lends a certain measure of freedom. Like I, I, I want to be that free. Like if you're hanging out with someone and you really sense that this person is living authentically and freely themselves, it's very attractive. So, um, maybe that's the short answer. The other thing I, I would say though, is, um, I, when I say question the Bible, as I'm thinking about it just now, I don't necessarily mean, go get a degree in Hebrew. I'm kind of tired of that, you know, like, well, I have to understand this word means this. And, you know, part of me is like, that's bullshit. You know, I I know that's what the internet says. And I know I sat there in Hebrew class and they told me what that meant, but it's interpretation is complex. And, and I think we go wrong when we start to say something like, if I get the interpretation, right, I'll get God, right. As if, Mm. you know, as if that's the game, but that's the problem. That's, that's a game. So when it comes to the stories, you don't need a degree. Like let's take the Jacob and Esau story. Yeah. And if you begin to read symbolically, mythically, metaphorically, it's a completely different story. You're not asking questions like, well, what is God trying to tell me about theology here? You're actually yeah, a literal seven days or an evolutionary approach. Like, no, yeah, you go like, no, you missed the whole nonsense. thing. That's nonsense. But Jacob and Esau, you have a good boy who's at home 
trying to please mom and you have a wild son who's who in a way is trying to please dad and they're at war with one another now not Mm. only is that true just culturally there's like a good boy and a wild boy wild man good good man that are kind of at war but that's also true in the in the in one's own psyche and Mm. once you start to read like that it's like you don't need you can ask questions like where do I find myself in the story? Or yeah. do I find myself on the bank of a river at night trying to wrestle with the divine saying, I'm not going to let go, even if I get hurt here? Is that where yeah. I am in the story? Or, And, and that, that's like no degree, no specialness. I don't need anybody to interpret it for me. It's just the symbol itself has a kind of resonance that that when you start to say, where do I what am I resonating with on the level of the soul inside this story? Or what am mm. I resisting on the level of the soul inside this story? Then I think we're actually engaging in the Bible in the way it was always meant to be engaged anyway. Yeah. Um, but then we're not, we're not actually dealing with who has the right interpretive lens for this one half a word in this one sentence, you know, sure. doesn't matter. Yeah, it's funny you say that because um, that's something that still is is something I'm really trying to fight for and being honest with that. I was even thinking the other day, I put something on social media. I was thinking about writing a Christmas song this year. Mm. Um, and the premise was, I was thinking about calling the title of the song something along the lines of like Bastard Son, mm. which isn't, it's very different than, than Silent Night. And, uh, <laughs> you know, yeah. I, and, and the premise was, if the if if you're gonna buy the story of substitutionary atonement that that God was so pissed off, the only way that the sovereign creator of everything could be tempered from his own anger is to murder innocence, and then he's fine. Then then is the story of the birth of the Christ actually the beginning of the death sentence for the, for this poor thing? Hmm. Because if if that's your story. Then you go, maybe this wasn't a beautiful silent night with a sweet little baby. Maybe this was a cruel, hey, now now begins your death sentence. Yeah. And uh and it was really fascinating because a lot of the comments that came back were, Well, Heath, obviously you don't understand this theological theory. Obviously you don't understand the the doctrine of this. And I'm like, I just don't see like I feel like this this beautiful book, um, inspired, whatever you might call it, uh, it should be available to the common man that doesn't have eight years of theological training in a certain denominational seminary to be able to unpack it, right? And I was just amazed. Like, here I am trying to attempt to wrestle through something, and the arrows are already flinging back at me that I haven't properly understood certain specific heady PhD-level doctrines of, of atonement or... Uh, the incarnation and that sort of stuff. And so I just, it, it was shocking to me. Just like, man, I can't even think for myself without being told you're too stupid to understand this because you don't have the training. Yeah. And, the, and, and that, that kind of mind virus um, hmm. blocks all of the transformative possibilities because you've already made up your mind. I know yeah. what this means and this has to confirm my worldview. That's not a symbolic story. That's well, it makes problem. you skittish to ask those questions, right? Because then I go, man, maybe I'm not qualified. Maybe I'm not smart enough to think for myself or to even try to attempt to understand this thing. Yeah, exactly. Because you're going to get your hand slapped because you don't understand the thing behind the thing, which is, 
oh gosh, it's exhausting. And it's, yeah, it's, it's just kind of crazy. Um, so I'm curious how you, one of the things you mentioned a few minutes ago is kind of this concept of, of, uh, of leaving the home that you were raised in and thinking for yourself and how in your own life have you, um, how do you, how do you keep from, from running back to safety or running back to home? Is it that cloud of unknowing that keeps you moving forward into pressing into the mystery or is it, it's, it's so much safer at home, man. It's safer to come home, right? I don't know. I think, um, I, there's, there is no going back hmm. at a certain point. And like when Jonah is thrown off the ship in the story and he's in the ocean and he's about to be swallowed by the fish, he can't get back on. Hmm. And I think what happened to me feels like that. I don't have the option. I can't, um, it's sort of like burning too many bridges. Like even with mm. Marceau, which is funny, like, um, you know, they're not going to call me and invite me back. I mean, I haven't yeah. talked to anyone there in however many years since I left, not no one, mm. unless I just bumped into him on the street. But, um, and, and I was at this church for like 17 years. It was a part of my life and it's just, yeah. and I'm not celebrating that. Um, sure. but I'm just saying it's, severance like the kind I'm describing it doesn't really give you that option Mm. Um, I don't I couldn't piece my old life back together again and I've been cast out or mystery has casted me out (laughs) and so it's much more a, a question of I guess just navigating the present all right what is Hmm. Um, where does my sense of grounding and belonging come from now? And, um, and what would it be like to trust such a thing? And, and that's one of the things about, as you probably know, being in ministry, meaning comes prepackaged. Like you're already Hmm. doing something meaningful. You're the pastor and community prepackaged all these people you're supposed to care about and they're supposed to care about you. And you don't have that. I don't have that anymore. And even though I'm a part of a place called C3, it doesn't feel like a, in some ways it feels like a church, but it it doesn't really function like a church. It doesn't call itself a church, but um, I just don't have those like prepackaged answers. And I, it, yeah, I I don't know what I would maybe say beyond that. Yeah, it's funny you say that because I I was even thinking about that. So uh, three weeks ago, two weeks ago, I got a I got a call from my employer saying, "Hey, we don't have any upcoming stuff, and so we're gonna have to let you go. COVID's kind of beating us up." And and I thought the first thing was, "Well, I'll go back to ministry." Mm-hmm. And I know, like, oh, like it would have to be a really specific setting, uh, nothing like I've ever done before. And it was so fascinating how the first inclination was to run home to run to safety and then i started thinking with this podcast i mean there's no church that would ever hire me again in a a major denomination (laughs) maybe there's some out there i don't know but but just how fascinating it is that you know by by me questioning and pushing and have having conversations with different types of people they associate me as having lost my faith and the only thing that the thing that felt safest for me to do was to run back home And, and and realizing even that, even that sense of home, that sense, that sense of safety and security, 
is a figment of my imagination because it's not there. Mm. There's not there's not a home there's not a realistic home to return to. Even the churches that I've been in that that would you know your family we're we're family we do life together we do this. It's just not true. Like it, when push comes to shove, it's an illusion. Um, and so I was just kind of curious what your thoughts were, but I do find pressing into that mystery to be the most beautiful thing. And I, and some of the most intentional and amazing conversations I've had are with people who are, who are now outsiders. It makes me think of Jesus saying like, there are many, I have many sheep that are not of this fold. Yeah. Go, yeah. I have sheep, you know, nothing about that's one of the best lines. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's oh. so good. And I'm like, I hope I'm in that group. Like, I hope that, I hope that Jesus would go like, no, you know, my voice, like yeah. you follow me under the unknown, under the mystery, under the, under the places that were unsafe, under the places people said not to go. And and the, I got a special place for those sheep, you know? <laughs> and I just I just don't fit in the flock much. Yeah. On the other hand, I think it's also true that any kind of transformation takes time. And mm. there's a lot of stopping and starting and trying and, um, and going back. And um, I don't know. I mean, like Joseph Campbell talks about in his, in his book here with a thousand faces, he says that there's also a phase of refusing the call. So you might get the mm. call and then you might refuse the call. And that's just as important as receiving the call. I'm, I'm thinking, you know, just symbolically here. Yeah. And the fact that you would refuse or go back to some other job, I just say, okay, big deal. You know, I mean, what jobs are we, <laughs> I mean, it's really the modern person that has put so much identity into the job one has. I don't think personally the soul cares what kind of job you have. Like Mm -hmm. right now, I don't even think my soul would care if I was a pastor in in an evangelical church. Now, I don't I can't imagine how that would happen. But it doesn't matter because when you are embodying who you are and and what you've been called to do in the world. And by calling, I mean something like your voice, yeah, your real true vox, your voice, your vocation. It doesn't matter what pays the bills. You can, you can mm. do a bit of this and a bit of that. And if this goes away, no big deal. You, 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 the, the chord of meaning has been struck. So mm. how you work it out, it's, um, I don't know. It's like a wildly freeing place to be. I mean, what would you say of Jesus? Like, what's his job anyway? Yeah. Did he even have a job? I don't know. Maybe he did. But that's not even the point because he was embodying his way of being in the world and as a transformed person, helping Mm. other people transform. And if he fished or made stones or or was a bum, doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. What well, is interesting how deeply ingrained vocation is tied to identity. Um, you know, you get, you sit on a plane next to somebody and the first question is, you know, so what do you do? It's never, it's never identity. Like, who are you? Like, yeah, what are you yeah. passionate about? What drives you? What, ke- what wakes you up in the mor- in the middle of the night? What, what keeps you going another day? It's, oh, what do you do to pay your bills? And then out of that, we try to find our identity and it's just, it's a very t- twisted way of, of thinking, but you're, you're correct in that. Yeah. Um, okay. Last question for you is, uh, you know, what are you doing now? Like, what's, what are you reading? Who are you reading? What are some thoughts on your mind that are kind of pushing you now? Um, since you've even written this book, uh, what are some new questions you might be asking or, or areas of interest to you? 
Yeah. Um, I'm working on a new book, speaking of awesome. book, which I mentioned a few minutes ago. So I'm looking at this, what I see as a kind of uh, pattern of transformation in the story hmm. and that I think is relevant. Uh, yeah. Actually, Jesus is asked, you know, for a sign, he says, no sign will be given to you except the sign of Jonah. So I'm kind mm. of, I'm working with this transformative, it's a kind of death and resurrection symbol. It's a kind of drowning and a spitting out. Yeah. So anyway, I'm, I'm, I'm working on that. I'm using a lot of biblical material, which is kind of like surprising me. So I don't know if, um, I don't know what will come of that. Uh, most of the other things I'm into, so I'm a part of something called Animus Valley Institute in Colorado. This is a, I'm in a guide training program for taking people out to wild places and doing kind of spiritual work. Cool. And the training is quite intense and quite long. I've been in it for three years now. Hmm. And we do everything from kind of wanders to working with dreams to um, uh, kind of um, councils or conversations and small settings, a bunch wow. of other things other stuff. And that is a real area of sort of passion of mine. I really like doing um, psycho-spiritual work outside. And I think sure. people, um, it can be an important aspect of taking one's life more seriously, times yeah. of retreat and saying, nope, I need to change my life. <laughs> sure. So that's kind of what, um, that's the other side of the the work that I'm into. So a lot of what I'm reading are things like Carl Jung and James Hollis and James Hillman. These are, these are depth psychologists and I'm sure. wrestling, I think more directly with what is the relationship between depth psychology and the great spiritual traditions and, hmm. and even the person of Jesus and the story of Christianity and um, how are they related? How, how, how is the symbolic terrain similar? So those are kind of some of the That's things awesome. that I'm into. That's really cool. And if people, I mean, you've got a podcast. It's pretty amazing. I watch on, on Facebook, your the C3 sort of stuff. And so I would encourage people to go check out kentdobson.com. Uh, yeah, thanks. To get more information about you. Yeah, yeah I should well, thank you about C3 just before we go, because yeah, I never imagined I would be in any kind of spiritual community once I left Mars Hill. But this place called C3 that's doesn't have any doctrine statement, has values, and it's a mixture of maybe Christians non-Christians, a um, couple of Jewish people that meet in Grand Haven in a community center invited me to teach. And I just started a relationship with them. And now that's, um, I work for them. And so cool. when it's not COVID, I'm out there uh, most of the weeks, but that's been a really sure. interesting gift in my life. And a lot of the people are older. It's a little bit of an older and smaller community. And hmm. just being around people who have been down the road a ways, <laughs> yeah. elders, has been really life-giving to me. And it's also just a great, I just really like teaching. So I'm happy and thankful to be back in that kind of environment. That's awesome. Is there a, is there a favorite book that you, maybe the last year or two have said like, read this one, if you're going to read one more before you die. Before you die. Yeah. Um, one that maybe has changed the trajectory of where you're at right now. Is there Like I was saying, like your book and what is the Bible by Bell for me were some, some of the Jenga blocks that caused the castle to fall. Did, do you have one or two that I know we talked about the cloud of unknowing. Um, didn't know if there's anything else out there. I really like this book called iron John by Robert Bly. 
Okay. This started to really mess with me. And hmm. it's a book about masculine, the masculine and, okay. and the sacred masculine, you could say, hmm. which is a conversation that the whole world needs right now. Um, hmm. Not only do we need a conversation about the sacred feminine, but we can't have that without also discussing what does it mean to be a man? What is yeah. the masculine? And, and also in, a, in an age where there's so much conversation about gender, um, that anyway, Iron John is, it ranks up with like, if I were to be stranded on a desert Island, I might take this book with me. Wow. I just bought it on eBay while we're talking. <laughs> okay. So, so that's going to be what I, I move on to. You might read it and be like, Oh God. Um, no. but no, well it, that, I mean, th- I've read this book several times. So that's just the one that popped, popped into my head. As, awesome. Um, yeah, and uh, well, that's all that's, that's good to me right this second. Well, thank you so much for for being on here again. I'm, I'm a, uh, you've caused me to rethink uh, the the world that I was raised in, and in doing so, have made uh, the concept of faith and um, even what is Christianity a, a beautiful thing to me. Uh, and so, I thank you for that, and I hope that when Jonah's done, that we can get you back on to talk about that one. Thanks. Thanks. Awesome. I, I, thanks for hosting the conversation. And um, it was a joy. Thanks for sharing a little bit of your own uh, story and along the way. Yeah. Appreciate it. Oh, glad to, ma'am. Again, that's Kent Dobson. You can visit his website, which is kentdobson.com. He's also got a really great podcast called Hints and Guesses. I'd encourage you to check that out and uh, read his book, Bitten by a Camel. It is a fascinating book. It's honest. It's authentic. This guy has been a massive influence in my life. And uh, I hope he keeps producing great content because I will be consuming it. As always, been a pleasure being with you. Next week, we're talking about Out of the Fourth Place, a new way to do church. See you then. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Heath in Pursuit podcast. We look forward to being back with you next week. For more information on the various works of Heath Hollandsby, please visit heathinpursuit.com.